one and all, and welcome back to yet another episode of History's Spelunkers. This is the podcast where we crawl deep into the cracks and crevices to learn all about the niche and obscure topics from our history. I am your host, Kelvin, he, him pronouns, and joining me today for the first time are my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts. Say hi. My name is Ashlyn, pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kelly. Hey, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. Have y'all done anything like this before? Podcasting? No. Being annoying in a public setting? Yes. (laughs) Well, if we're excited, then let's not delay and go down the rabbit hole. Let's go. South in the land of traders, rattlesnakes and alligators. Right away, right away, come away, come away, right away, come away. Okay, so I told y'all today that we are going to be talking about the American Civil War, Woo-hoo. which you know is a fairly important series of events in American history as far as things go. Some might say. Um, you know, there's a lot of political nuance and all that stuff, really interesting, big battles, and <laughs> abolishing slavery, yay. <laughs> yay! Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so all that stuff, but uh, what we're going to be doing today is uh, more, we're going to be talking about some military history, but some of the more obscure and unusual battles. Definitely probably haven't heard about these in a history textbook. Okay. Um, and specifically, they're going to be geographically weird. Okay. So if you want to take a random guess on where the first battle we're going to talk about was located. Maine. Mm, that's a good guess. Is it... Can I have some hint? Like, what? Is it like one of the earlier no, it's, battles? No, it's a... Throwing a dart at the globe. Totally random place. Okay, I'm going to say South Carolina. Okay, okay. Uh, well, how about off the coast of France? Mm, okay, I'm intrigued. So, yes, the topic of today's episode will be battles in the American Civil War that were fought not in the United States. Oh, okay. okay. I didn't okay. realize that, yes. that any were. Yeah, no, they're... Very small list of, like, notable battles. But, yes, <laughs> out a civil war that was fought not in the civil parts. Are these all three that were outside the U.S., or are there more that we're not covering? Uh, there. I mean, there's definitely more mm. than just this list. Um, and most of them would be, like, naval battles and stuff, like yeah. this first one is, just because... Okay. It's easier to get mm. outside of the U.S. and be fighting each other on ships, on boats. That makes sense. It's kind of insane how many times the French just like appear in American wars. <laughs> True. No, they need to like mind their own business. They, they need got to too stop. much of their own business to worry about. Like honestly. genuinely, y'all had the French Revolution. I don't want to take your advice. Like, <laughs> <please>. <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, you know, for most people, the reason why this is weird, of course, is. Most of these battles are being fought, you know, southern United States, mm-hmm. Mississippi, 
So how do we end up in France? Okay. Mm-hmm. It starts off with a bit of discussing the big strategies that were going on in the war. So one of the Union's main ways that they wanted to beat the South was through what was known as the Anaconda Plan. And the main aspect of this plan was a strong naval blockade that cut off the rebelling states from the rest of the world so they couldn't trade cotton and make money to finance the war effort. You know, just cut them off from the rest of the world, basically, and starve them out. Well, the South was not able to really break this blockade in large number of ways, but there were some ships on the other side of this blockade doing war stuff. Cool. And so that's how we get some of those things. Um, they didn't really have the resources to do like a reverse blockade of the northern states mm. just because they're too busy doing plantations. They don't have factories. Doing plantations. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Enslaving people to do the plantations more properly, but... It's like how in the bar movie, Ken's job is just beach. The South's job was just plantation. Doing plantation. Right. Okay. Exactly. Um, But not all of them just did plantation. The Mm -hmm. ones that did make it out and they couldn't do blockade, they decided to do pirate. (gasps) Ooh. Okay. Um, Or the more fancy term was commerce raiding. Mm -hmm. And so... The first ship in question, one of them was known as the CSS Alabama. Damn. Would these ships be considered blockade runners? This one, no, because it was never on the other side of the blockade. Okay. So what I mean by that was the CSS Alabama was actually constructed in Birkenhead, England, which is outside of Liverpool. And they called it CSS Alabama? Because it was made for the Confederate Navy, Uh, yes. And it was built there because South don't have no industry. Mm -hmm. They don't do industry. Correct. Mm -mm. And so, uh, and England did. They're known for building Wait, so the English was like pro-South? They... We're not upset with the South. They yeah. liked their cotton and the money that it made okay, them for their yeah. textile industries. Yeah. But they were also, I feel like, kind of just more like pro who was ever going to give them money. Right. They they were technically neutral. And they'd already abolished slavery. Right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't care if other people did slavery because they were busy doing colonialism. So, so true. They, this, you're so That's right. so yeah. true. Yeah. They, were like, they were like, no, we don't have slaves. We just have colonies that we enslave. So... Exactly. Yeah. Not not individual people. Whole continents. Just, just, yeah. yeah, just entire countries. We just yeah. subjugate entire nations and peoples. That's really different than like, what you guys are doing. So. Yeah, so true. They were like, this make people uncomfortable because they don't have to like, you know, look at it every day. That's exactly. like... So, the CSS Alabama was built <laughs> near Liverpool, um, but because um, England is neutral, they can't really be building warships so what they did was they built the ship but didn't put any of the weapons on it until it was in international waters because that's okay yeah honestly 
can chill with that. That's cunty, honestly. I'm sorry. That's really cool of them. So that's how that was their loophole, mm-hmm. and that's what they did. And so most of the crew also was actually British because it's kind of hard to get people from Georgia to England to get on a ship that was built there, you know, mm-hmm. with this existing blockade that we've established. So it was a British crew on a British-built Confederate vessel that was captained by a Confederate. Uh, His name was Raphael Sims, Mm -hmm. and he was from Maryland, Mm -hmm. but he fought for the Confederacy because he was a traitor, so... Boo! Yeah. Um, So he captained the vessel all over the world doing commerce raiding pirate stuff. He was, you know, Atlantic Ocean, Gulf of Mexico, coast of Brazil. He even made it over to Indonesia at one point. Wow. Damn. And during the period from August of 1862 to December of 1863, he managed to capture or sink around 60 Union vessels. God damn. Wow. Wait, so you said he went to Brazil? Yeah. Wow, when they say go to Brazil, come to Brazil, Raphael Sims went to Brazil. Yes. I do have a question. Of course. When you're saying that a lot of these pirate groups were Confederate groups that then kind of, you know, tried to get around the blockade by doing piracy, was this official units in the Confederate army doing this? Or was it kind of rogue confederate sympathizers or southern people. he was a member of the confederate military oh wow so this was captaining like... this confederate commission ship okay so this was a they basically had pirate units sort of yeah sort of okay okay yeah and so warfare. and his job was basically just to go around disrupting union trade to try and mess up their economy Okay. okay, but he wasn't necessarily tasked with getting things and bringing it back to the cell. No, he was not. Okay, okay. So, like I said, he's captured, sunk about 60 Union vessels in this little over a year-long period. But by December of 63, he was kind of in a bit of a dry spell on sinking boats. Okay. Um, he had only mm-hmm. destroyed six in like the last four months because he's on the complete opposite side of the world from where everyone else is. So mm-hmm. kind of makes it difficult for him to do his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he'd been out there for a while. So he decided that it was best to return to Europe to get some repairs done on a ship and give his crew some much needed shore leave. Cool. And so on June 11th of 1864, the CSS Alabama dry docked at Cherbourg, France, mm-hmm. and got all of its repairs done. Simultaneously, there was the USS Kearsarge, Ooh. Mm. which was captained by John A. Winslow. Okay. And they had been basically hunting the CSS Alabama in the North Atlantic for months at this point. Holy like shit. tea. Um if I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's uh Master and Commander at the Far Side of the World. It's a Russell Crowe movie. I have not seen have it not. because it is a Russell Crowe no, movie. Well, yeah. 
it's basically the plot of that movie. Wait, so were they in South France? South of France or North France? North France. Okay. Cherbourg. Um, okay. okay. Uh, yeah, off the Norman area. Gotcha. I guess. And so three days after the CSS Alabama docked in Cherbourg, the Kearsarge arrived and was mm. like, hey, what are you doing here? Ah! I just want to talk. Yeah. And, um... But of course, France is not involved in this war. They're neutral. Mm-hmm. And so they were very adamant about y'all cannot fight in our territorial waters. Like, mm. that's too messy. Yeah. So as long as they're here, they're under our protection. But, you know, y'all can stay and stare at each other. We're not going to stop you. Okay. And so... After a few days of waiting for a ship to be repaired um, and just kind of gauging things out, Captain Sims of the Alabama decided that he just wasn't going to wait out the entire rest of the war. In He was going to go out there and do his job and be a pirate. Fuck yeah. So um, he waited a couple of days, tried to train up his crew a little bit to... Uh, be prepared for this battle that he knows he's going to have the moment he leaves the French port. Mm-hmm. And so on June 19th, 1963, the Alabama was escorted by a French ship to international waters. And then we'll let y'all do have it out. And so now that they were both outside of territorial waters, they engaged one another in battle, you know, just, Generic cannons, cannons, naval warfare. Okay, and uh, just firing full broadsides at each other. How far off the shore of France were they? Uh, I think the boundary for international waters is like eleven miles. This may not be a question that we know the answer to, but was maritime law like a thing at this point? Like, did they have all the rules yet about like? where you were allowed to fight and, like, what all the maritime rules were? I think there's, like, a general consensus, but there's definitely nothing written down by that point. Okay, okay. I was just curious, because I listened to a podcast the other day that was talking about maritime law, and I was like, I wonder, but okay. But they were they were gentlemen. I mean, they let themselves get escorted by the French off 11 miles before shooting cannons at each other. You're so right. You know what? Bring back the ham hawk... Like sideburns, oh, yeah. mutton chops, bring back mutton chops and pirates for men, honestly. Yeah. I mean, pirates, yeah. yeah. Calvin is against I, I've been chops. watching, I mean, that's a bit much. Because <laughs> <laughs> while people were wearing mutton chops, they were also simultaneously doing like full neck beards, not just mm. not having shape, but like letting it grow out just on their neck. You're right, that was a bad era. So. Yeah, it, it, it was gross. But anyways, uh, for some general idea on like how much damage these ships can do to each other, um, the Alabama had three cannons per side of its ship and two pivot guns that could rotate. Mm, okay. And the Kearsarge had four cannons and like three big, like, not cannons, but they were more, like, rifle, artillery gun-type things. Okay. Um, 
One's called a parrot rifle. Oh, cool. I don't know what it is, but it had one. It talks to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It was really speaking to the USS Kiergaard. So, yeah, they're shooting at each other. Um, But this is before, like, the ships were metal. They're still, like, wooden vessels for the most part. Um, They have, like, steam engines and stuff. Mm -hmm. But mostly wood. Um, so they were sinking. <laughs> well, that's the thing is the Kearsarge actually had basically the equivalent of like chain mail for Ooh, ships on it. That's cute. So that kind of protected it a bit more than the Alabama. They just had vibes surrounding their ship. Right. Yeah. Not great ones, it seems like. And uh, so, yeah, the they shot at each other for about an hour and... Uh, eventually the Alabama began to sink mm. and, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in total, the Kearsarge had three casualties and the Alabama had at least 28. <gasps> um, what is this? Like getting a cannon to the head? Like, I don't understand. You can just like hide under... Under. You could drown, like, if your ship just goes down. Uh, well, or yeah. they had the artillery, so people probably got shot. Yeah, explosions and shrapnel. Okay. And... That makes sense. Like if, a, like, if a giant wooden beam fell and crushed you. Uh, lots of ways to die on a ship battle, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's about 150 men on each vessel. Okay. Just to give you an idea of percentages. Yeah. So most people on the ships lived. Right. Um, 68 crew members of the Alabama were rescued and then held as prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. Um, but Captain Sims was not rescued by the Kearsarge. He managed to be rescued by a British yacht that just happened to yacht. be nearby. <laughs> a yacht. They had and, so, and they were staying, they were at the battle? What I mean, they... it's fun to watch. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. No, I think yeah. it's so true, actually. Because if I saw two ships just going at it in the ocean, like, you better believe I'd be pulling up a sea. Yeah, really. And so, uh, Captain Sims was rescued by this British vessel and was taken back to England. And, uh... So he managed to completely escape, and uh, he eventually made his way back to the uh, Confederacy and continued to fight until the end of the war. Damn. Um, This battle, for some reason, became the very famous subject of several different, like, paintings of, like, some naval art, and so... That's a thing. And uh, part of the Kearsarge, um, it's the stern post, one like the mast that held the sails. Mm-hmm. Actually, part of it is kept at the like Naval History Museum in Washington, D.C. because it has one of the Alabama's cannonballs <gasps> like embedded oh, inside of it. That's so cool. I, that's so. really cool. I feel like that's kind of a cool metaphor for the Civil War on a boat mast, I have to say. Just like an interesting piece of history. My question also is, at what point did we get, um, like, old Ironsides, like the ships that had the metal? Um, Well, old Ironsides specifically was not, that was like Revolutionary War. It didn't have metal in it. They just called it that. Oh. Oh. But, um, (laughs) But 
in the Civil War was whenever they started coming up with um, ironclads or what they called them at first. Okay. And but there's only like two or three of them, and then it was after that that the technology really started to advance. So by the Spanish-American War at late 1800s, that's whenever you start seeing like the big battleships and stuff. Okay, I'm glad I went into debt for a history degree, just so I could call the ships the wrong thing. <laughs> it's fine. So, that's our first battle. Okay. Our second international battle was also a naval one, and also involved a Confederate commerce raider, you know, the pirates. Um, so, it's this story is going to sound pretty similar to the first one, but it... It has different vibes. You know, we were saying all that this gentlemanly stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. not so much, but okay. also some energy. Um, so uh, this second vessel that we will discuss is the CSS Florida. Because mm-hmm. I guess you can only come up with so many interesting names. <laughs> um, but the Florida was also constructed in England and armed in international waters that whole bit. And it also began its career about the same time in August of 1862. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so actually a lot of the United States Navy confused the two ships for one another. And so you'll see like newspaper reports that they're basically, they think it's just one ship doing all this stuff. Oh. But it's actually different ones. But they all look the same. So. Okay. Um. But the Florida was not as successful as the Alabama. They only managed to sink 37 ships. Boo. Only 37. So, and uh, they're also traveling all over the world. And so in October of 1864, the Florida found herself under the command of a Charles Manigault Morris Ooh. of South Carolina. And they managed to take a trip to Brazil, <gasps> and they were docked at the port of Salvador in Bahia. Okay. I think this is where the saying, you know, like, Taylor Swift, come to Brazil, it comes from, because all these Civil War guys, they did, in fact, go to Brazil. That's yeah. exactly it. That's exactly it. Was it by popular demand, or did they just all really like the warm weather in Brazil? What was, like, the reasoning for going to specifically Brazil? Oh, because Brazil was, like, one of the last countries in the world to outlaw slavery. Mm. Mm. And my they, friends <laughs> and uh, you're talking about all of them going to Brazil sidebar after the war there's this whole thing called confederados oh God. where okay. basically a bunch after the war instead of swearing loyalty to the US again and having to go through the horror that is deal with mediocre levels of equality between black and white people like mm. Because the horror that they can't have slaves anymore, literally like hundreds of thousands of former Confederates, maybe not that many, but like tens of thousands at least, moved to Brazil and like just set up shop again. Just so they could be racist there? Yeah. <laughs> in in public and, and in peace. Yeah. yeah, and so there's actually like a state in Brazil that has like a large enough population of like the descendants of these former Confederates and they hold like barbecues and stuff no. and like, dress up and wave Confederate flags no. and shit. Yeah. 
it's the strange. Brazilian Confederates. Yeah. It's just like the Nazis thing. in Argentina. I was gonna say it's really interesting because you think about how weird the overlap is that like two white supremacist populations, like decades, decades apart, were all like, we need to be in South America. It's it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. Colonialism. They were yeah. I mean, to be fair, Brazil and Argentina both have incredible food so i mean if i had to like flee my country <laughs> yeah. i honestly i have to say brazil and argentina don't seem at least modern day argentina and brazil not bad choices. and that's what the confederates are after just the good brazilian the great food the great music the vibes mm. carnival i mean brazil has it all what else could you i can't blame them for going to brazil yeah can blame them for slavery though this is true mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah so sidebar side uh so yeah they went down to Brazil, Port Bahia, um, the CSS Florida. They are also being chased by different Union vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the one at the time was the USS Wachusett. Okay. <laughs> um, under the command of Napoleon Collins. And they were just happened to be in the area and saw the Confederate ship enter the bay. Mm. And, but the Confederates didn't see them. And so they were like, oh shit, we got them by surprise. Mm. So just to make sure that they're not about to like make an absolute fuck up, they uh, sent like a smaller boat into the bay to be like, hey, yo, you're Americans. We're, oh, your Confederates were like Americans, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Well, what, what's your ship's name? And they're like, oh, we're the Florida. What's your name? And they're like, oh, we're just some whaling vessel, you know. <laughs> they gave it a fake name. Yeah. And we're like, okay, nice to meet y'all. And then they went back and were like, yeah, no, that's some Confederates. We need to kill these traitors. And mm. so uh, after a little bit, the on October 5th, um, the Wachuset pulled into the bay and anchored at the entrance of it so that no one could get by them to be mm. like, hey, y'all can't leave. We just want to talk. Yeah. And so... Captain Manigault on the Florida, he approached the Brazilian authorities to be like, can y'all do something about this man over here? (laughs) And uh, the Brazilian authorities were like, no, and we don't want y'all fighting in our neck of the woods. So we're going to give you Confederates two days to finish up your repairs on your ships and then get your ass out of here. Mm. And, and they were going to do, like, a whole, we'll escort you to international waters, and then you can do your whole thing. Right. But they did make sure to mention that uh, if it just so happened that y'all started fighting in the bay, we will come to the defense of whoever gets fired upon first. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We'll, we will pl- pick sides if y'all do yeah. fight here. Um, Don't fire first. Correct. Okay. And so they also suggested to the Confederates, you might want to move your ship out of the way so that they can't just shoot at you from where they currently are, the Union vessel. And so they did. They maneuvered around the bay and were going to wait out their two days and just do this whole thing. Well, 
Commander Collins, he was uh, not necessarily wanting to wait that long. And so he sent over a letter to the Florida in order to discuss their surrender. He's mm-hmm. like, hey, let's talk. However, the crew of the Florida would not accept the letter mm. because it was not addressed to the CSS Florida. Um, it was only addressed to the Sloop Florida. So because mm. Captain Collins would not dignify their vessel by acknowledging it being like a foreign government Confederate state service. Mm-hmm. He was like, nah, y'all are traitors. Y'all are pirates. I'm not going to dignify y'all by pretending your country exists. Honestly, he was so real for that. Like, was it petty? Yeah. But was it real? Yes. What is sloop? It's just like a small ship. Oh. It's, yeah. It's like insulting to call like, I guess an actual naval vessel a, a sloop. Right. Yeah. It's like if I was like calling your car, I don't know, like, like a, like a wagon. If I was like, right. or um, something really insulting for cars, whatever that term might be. My yeah, like a wheelbarrow or something. Yeah. <laughs> I was I like, get go, on your plank, Mr. Collins, honestly. Go, Collins. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, Confederates can get fucked. Yeah, so, so true. Yeah. Team Union, all the way. This uh, is a pro union podcast. This is it. wasn't clear. <laughs> Yeah, play Union Dixie right now. So, the Florida would not accept the letter, and they're like, no, actually, you gotta call us by our proper title. And he's like, nah, bitch. And so he sent over the U.S. Um, consul that was in the area okay. to try and meet with Manigault and be like, hey, y'all need to surrender. Mm-hmm. And Manigault refused, but he was like, nah, I'm not going to surrender, but if we leave the bay and run into each other, I'm a fight, sure. And so <laughs> the exchange of words took place on October 6th. There's still like another, a full day that the Brazilian government has let this Confederate ship stay in the bay. Well, Mr. Collins was not satisfied, nor was he a very patient man, it seems. Mm. So at 3 a.m. in the morning on the next day, uh, the Wachusett weighed anchor repositioned itself in the bay and fired at the Florida (gasps) and then started moving closer towards it. Fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, depending on your point of view, most of the crew was not on board because they're not expecting an attack. They're getting repairs done shit. And so it's also the middle of the night. And so the crew that was on board was awakened by this first volley of cannons. But given how dark it was and they were unable to locate the Union vessel to defend themselves until they were close enough to start shooting at each other with like normal sized guns and pistols and stuff. And so they're shooting at each other. The Watch You Sit manages to get like another volley of cannons 
And then, like, full-on, this is, like, full-on pirate. They send in a boarding party. They take the ship. And they they ram the Florida. It's, like, a whole thing. And uh, they manage to quickly get the Confederates that are on board to surrender. But the Wachusa fired first. And so Brazil's going to be pissed. They know this. Mm -hmm. So they quickly tie up the Florida to a tow line and begin hauling (gasps) ass out of the bay. Ooh. Well, the Brazilian government was like, hey, what are y'all doing? Y'all can't fight here. And so the two forts in the bay and a paddle steamer begin firing on the Wachusett. <gasps> Commander Collins did not engage. He just hightailed it out of there and uh, managed to make it out. International waters head back up towards the U.S. with their prize. <gasps> Only around five Confederates were killed. And a couple more on both sides, you know, got hurt, mm-hmm. but no Union soldiers were killed. Yay. Um, needless to say, Brazil was pissed because we ain't involved while y'all fighting in my house. Mm-hmm. Commander Collins was court-martialed because he violated another country's sovereignty. But he was just beating up some traitors, so he never really got punished or anything. And a lot of people like, he's fine, which just pissed Brazil off even more. Uh-oh. Um, Yikes. But yeah, no, they're like, ah, he just killed some traitors. It's fine. He did a good job. So we made an enemy out of Brazil on that day. Forever. And, Forever. Yeah. They and, said, uh, do not come to Brazil. Collins was actually promoted after the war, mm, so. Scandal. Yay. Um... <laughs> Go Collins. Yeah, right. Kind of, actually, kind of slay of him, really, to do, like, a nighttime sneak attack and get away with it. Yeah, and uh, Brazil demanded that the CSS Florida be returned to the international waters so that way, like, the crew that was stranded down there can get their ship back. Um, but Collins and the Union uh, Navy were like, oh, you want this ship back? That's a shame because it kind of had a bit of a collision and sank on like a month after the incident. And, uh, Oh no. Oopsie. We, it ran into something. We couldn't <laughs> save it. They, they almost definitely intentionally sank it. But yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, how the U S violated, uh, international maritime law and just kind of got away with it. Yeah, mm. not the first time the U.S. has violated international law and gotten away with it, and certainly not the last. Right, right. So, uh, our last battle, we're going to change it up. We're yeah. not going to do a naval battle. Okay. Um, we're going to fight on land. So, where do you think this strange land battle is going to be? Strange land battle. Portugal. That's on there. That's a really cool. You have really good guesses. Um, I'm assuming again, Kelvin will give me no hint. So I'm gonna go ahead and guess that it was in like Spain or potentially like the Netherlands, somewhere really random. Okay. Well, this one was a trick question. I lied a little bit. Uh, This battle did take place in the U.S. Kelly, you were actually really close with your guess the last time, if you remember. Maine. Vermont. I was gonna, okay, wait, that was gonna be my guess. There was a Civil War battle in f***ing Vermont? Yes. Yes. Um, the South wanted to change things up and kind of make it to where 
people in the North were having to experience the war on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So they tried a couple of times to invade North and stuff. And they got all the way to Vermont. Um, <laughs> Literally. Well, they invaded from Canada. Oh! Did they take a boat up and then come down? It, it's a story. So, it's it's a weird term of events. Can I ask one last question before we sure. fully dive in? Does the story in any way involve um, the, like, I think, 54th Maine, the Joshua Chamberlain unit? No, okay. it does not. Boo. This one will sound, even though it's in Vermont, it will sound like super Wild West Okay, I'm hyped. Bank I'm hyped. robbers. I'm hyped. I mean, Vermont's pretty Wild West. Pirates and bank yeah. robbers? I'm hyped. So... You know, um, Gettysburg is like the best example of the Confederates marching north mm-hmm. and trying to do shit. What was Gettysburg? Well, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was just about to say your high school education failed you. <laughs> I've been to Gettysburg, so it'd be pretty depressing if yeah, I had no idea. That, but um, especially since you like just brought up Joshua Chamberlain too, right? They we visited his site. One of my girls, a girl in my class, because I was this is a digression, but related. I took a Civil War seminar class in high school, and for like the semester class finale, we went on this big trip to that. Gettysburg. And one of the girls in my class was obsessed with Joshua Chamberlain. She had like T-shirts with his face on it. She bought all these books, and she whittled. This like tiny bust. What? That's who, who? that's a bit much. And she, we went to. I guess the fifty fourth Maine has kind of like its own little memorial site up on the hill, uh, like little round top at Gettysburg. Sure. And she asked me to go with her, and so we went to the little monument, and she had picked a rose from a shop earlier in the day, and she put <laughs> the little like yeah. <laughs> she put the hand carved bust and the rose on the statue of Joshua Chamberlain, and like cried. No. That's... So that's why I was curious if Joshua Chamberlain was making an appearance in this um, Northern Civil War tale. I mean, I'm all Union gang, but that's uh, you that sh- sounds unhealthy. You uh, wouldn't shed a tear for Joshua Chamberlain? Not, not particularly, no. Okay. Would you uh, shed a tear for any Civil War, I guess, battle site or person? General Sherman, you <laughs> your ass. <laughs> Okay, uh, fair enough. No, I, they're all weird. I don't know. They're all old. They didn't bathe people. enough. Yeah. They probably were all pretty f***ed up and racist and horrible. <laughs> yeah. But they did write some kind of cool letters. I have cried watching that Ken Burns documentary oh. about all the Civil War letters. So. Right, right. But, okay, we digressed. Yes. It was related, but let's get to the main battle. Canada. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yes, Can- Confederates in Canada. Um. So... Like I said, Gettysburg, the best example of them trying to go north. This wasn't the only time, though. Um, In the summer of 1863, uh, Confederate Brigadier General John Hunt Morgan led a cavalry raid through Kentucky and Ohio and managed to make it within, like, 60 miles of Pittsburgh. Dang. Um, but he was defeated at the Battle of Salinesville. One of the troops in this battle was a Private Bennett H. Young, and he was held as a Union POW in Cincinnati. But he managed to eventually escape to Canada and return south. 
while he was in Canada, he got the idea that, hey, if we're here, we could come from the other direction and they won't know what hit him. And so he proposed that he take an elite squad of <laughs> Confederate troops, station them in Canada, and then attack northern towns that won't have any protection because <laughs> they're all down south fighting, is his thought. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can loot stuff and raise funds for the Confederate cause and, uh, you know... And then they can just run back into Canada and escape the Union Army because they, they can't follow us. And so. they have Tim Hortons, which I'm assuming was another deciding factor. Right. Real. But my question is, I have always thought of Canada in the context of the Civil War as the place where the Underground Railroad kind of ended, like where slaves escaped right. into Canada. Were they just completely neutral? Is that why the Confederates were allowed to be there? Or were they kind of under the radar of the Canadian government? So... The Canadian government did not have slavery. You're all right. Um, Canadian government really didn't even exist at this point. Mm, like, Canada okay. didn't really become a thing until after our Civil War was over, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, and so it was mostly... It was pretty clandestine under the radar. Whenever I say, like, raiding, like, they're trying to, like, full-on outlaw cowboy train robbery type stuff. Dang, okay. Thank you for the clarification. And so their, their main thing is that, yeah, they're going to get to do all this damage and stuff, but their main thing is it being like a psychological, they can get us anywhere, not just at the front line type of thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can see why the Confederates would love Vermont. Vermont's a pretty racist place. Not gonna <laughs> <laughs> and I guess so is Canada, apparently, as we found out after all the indigenous school yeah. findings. So yeah. there's that, yeah. They just were finding anywhere they could go and just be racist, I guess. I guess so. Mm -hmm. And um, get maple syrup, so I mean. Yeah. But uh, this uh, private young managed to convince enough of the right people that this would be a good enough idea to try. And so he was made a lieutenant. He was promoted and then sent back to Canada to try this out. <laughs> so October of 1864, the now Lieutenant Young and about 20 cavalrymen arrived in the town of St. Albans, Vermont. I don't know where it is, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I need a map. Yeah, uh, it, it is about 15 miles from the U.S.-Canadian border. Okay. Mm. And they began arriving on October 12th, and it, in order to not attract attention to themselves, they would arrive like one or two at a time mm. into the town, stay at the hotel and check in, that type of thing. But so there wasn't just this one large group coming in at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, they stayed at a local hotel. They used fake identities. They were just chilling. They were just pretending to be fighting a war. Right. They, they, they went on vacation. The North. They were yeah. having a boys' trip to Vermont. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, and part of this boys' trip was scouting out the town to see how best they could shit up. I mean, that's any boy's trip, really. And yeah. so, uh, they decided that they would rob the town's three banks and then just set fire to the town and then leave. I mean, that sounds exactly like my brother's bachelor party. That's literally <laughs> any boy's trip. 
So, yeah. So they were like, okay, we're going to start October 19th after they'd been there for a few days. Mm -hmm. One group of this troops, I guess, gang, you know, uh, they went to rob the banks and this other half of them would gain control of the town by amassing basically any citizen they could find on the village green and just keeping them there. So that way they can go tear shit up without people getting in the way. Mm -hmm. So St. Albans Bank was the first bank that they robbed. They took all the cash, forced the citizens hostage, and they had all of the Vermonters that were in the bank swear an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy <laughs> and then locked them in the vault. Oh my gosh. Which is like, okay, you're going through these steps, you know, I guess, but... Jesus Christ. So they did that. Um, this robbery took about 12 minutes to do, this okay. whole thing, this first bank. The group that was gathering people on the Village Green, they were much more chaotic. Um, mm -hmm. They were stealing people's horses. They were just firing randomly in the streets. Um, ultimately, a member of the Union Army who just happened to be in town on leave mm. from the front, um, he was like, hey, what are these guys doing? And so he started organizing the townspeople to like fight <laughs> back. And so a full-on gunfight ensues in the middle of the town. The raiders killed a guy and then set fire to the town. Um, two townspeople were injured outside the guy that was killed. Wow. One of the raiders was wounded. And they set fire to the town to cover their tracks, basically with napalm. Like, Dang. Greek fire, technically, I think is what it was Dang. they called it. But um, the napalm that they brought with them wasn't working properly. Like, Dang. it didn't spread like they thought it was going to, so they only managed to burn one building down. <laughs> Something always goes wrong on boys' trip. And uh, they managed to finish robbing the banks, and they hightailed it out to Canada. And they just left? They didn't go they, further they, south? They just left. That, yeah. that was their whole thing, was we're just going to do a bunch of these little incursions. Wow. That really sucks when you think about the fact that none of those banks were FDIC insured. Right. Not a one. They, they stole uh, a little over $208,000 <gasps> back then, which in today's money is like $7 million. <gasps> what? Oh. Why was St. Albans so yeah, why loaded? Were they, why were they stacked they, like that? Yeah, it, uh, so they completely took all of the money out, all of these banks. <gasps> and uh, they ran into Canada, and they're like, oh yeah, the Americans can't follow us here. And it's mm. like, but they failed to consider that the Canadians would not like them doing shit there. Yeah. <laughs> and so the entire group was almost basically immediately captured mm. by Canadian authorities. Mm. Uh, Young himself managed to hide away in a farmhouse, but was discovered whenever, oh, they can't follow us here into Canada. <laughs> These Vermonters are like, we don't give a shit. Y'all just destroyed our town. <laughs> So the group of vigilantes 
reverse invaded Canada to go after the these Vermonters guys. The went after them. And found him in this barn house. And so... Uh, oh my god, what'd they do to him? They, they tried to lynch him, but <gasps> the Canadian authorities got there in time to save Young's Put life. to the lynching. This um, is what happens when you underestimate Canada. Respect the leaf, bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they managed to get all the raiders in custody... They only managed to recover a portion of the money and return it to the banks, though. Wow. Um, but they did promise to, like, ensure everyone that had lost their money okay. would get their money back. Who's they? Yeah. The, the townspeople. Yeah, Canada was going to oh. Insure the St. Them. Albans banks? And so, They're yeah. too nice. Oh, my God, Canada! <laughs> uh, but the Raiders themselves, they were put on trial in Canada. Mm. But they were ultimately released because there was not an extradition treaty at the mm. time between Canada and the U.S. Okay. Because Canada didn't really have, like, a federal government at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the Raiders decided that, uh, well, no, sorry. It was decided that since the Raiders had been acting under military orders, they weren't necessarily criminals, and so they had to be released. Um, so the raid basically turned many Canadians' opinions. If they are just lukewarm on the whole American Civil War, they now really hated the Confederacy because why y'all doing shit here? Yeah. We didn't do nothing. And so the Confederacy realized that it's probably not a good idea to keep doing these raids. And so the operation was discontinued. So yeah, St. Albans Raid, as it is called, has the distinction of being the northernmost land action of the, of the American Civil War. Wow. My question also would be, in the context of the Civil War, where is St. Albans in relation to Sherman's March on the South? And like... Like comparison in, of scale? Or? I guess time. Like, was it before time. the march or after the march? Let's look. Because I would just be curious to know if maybe, you know, the march had already started and so the South was kind of like, you know, oh, we're going to backlash against the North for what they're doing or if it was kind of, you know, prior to the Sherman's march to the sea. So Sherman's march from Atlanta to the sea was on November 15th, 1864 to December mm. 21st. So like a month later. That's kind of crazy. It was justice for St. Albans. Literally right? justice. It's a justice for Vermont, guys. <laughs> also, I kind of want to know, I love how vague that is. It says to the sea. Like where? Where to the Which sea? sea? Savannah. Okay, okay. Yeah, you did just say that. But it made me laugh because it's like, the march to the sea? Yeah. And I'm like, that's just really vague. It... Ah, actually, also weird Canada connection. Uh, the Calgary Flames, the National Hockey League team in Calgary, Canada, mm-hmm. used to be the Atlanta Flames, which <gasps> were named after the flames of Atlanta caused by Sherman's March. Oh my god! crazy. Why'd they do that? What a connection. Because they're mad that they got whooped. I guess, and then they just didn't change the name whenever the team moved. So mm, that's really interesting history, actually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so if Vermont St. Albans is the northernmost land battle, you want to guess when the 
where the northernmost back to the Navy naval action was. I'm going to guess, like, Alaska. Somewhere, like, or, like, yeah, I'm going to guess, like, either off the coast of Alaska or, like, off the coast of Canada, like, way up, like, Newfoundland or something. You, you would be correct. The northernmost action and the final action of the war was in the Bering Strait <gasps> when the CSS Shenandoah fired across the bow of a U.S. whaler on June 22nd, 1865, two months after the war was over. <laughs> and so the whaler was like, dude, what are y'all doing? The war's over. And they're like, oh, my bad. Sorry. What? I love that they were like kind of being environmentalists and then they were realizing that the war was over. Yeah. Classic Confederate L, honestly. Honestly, yeah. yeah. I wonder how long it took for like Confederates on the other side of the world to know. Well, it was a long time, actually, because the news didn't spread to a lot of corners ago for a long time. I mean, that's like what Juneteenth is about. Is, right. Like, even in Texas and Galveston, people didn't know that the war, slaves at least didn't know that the war was over and that they were free until, um, I think it was almost two years after the end of the war, right? Yeah, some of them. Yeah, it, um, it definitely took a while. I mean... For the news to reach, um, especially when people are actively trying to hide it from you. So true, right. yeah. When people will lie and you know, keep you from learning how to read, it does hinder your ability to know what's going on in the world, sadly. So, yeah, those are some of the more unique conflicts, geographically, of the American Civil War. Wow. And uh, it kind of really changes the way you just, like, perceive the conflict mm -hmm. in, like, the international order at the time. Yes. And how, like, the chances of it spilling over and becoming, like, this much bigger thing could have been... Yeah. Like, the Bahia incident is, like, the biggest one, because, like, what if Brazil managed to sink a U.S. vessel, mm -hmm. and then we got mad, and then does Brazil, you know, alternate history here, Brazil joins the Confederacy against yeah. us? But in reality, that was very unlikely, because Brazil was already having its own war against Paraguay, mm -hmm. and it was, like, one of the deadliest wars on the South American continent. Yeah. So... Their hands were kind of full, but... That is really interesting. I think especially, I always find it really interesting to look at conflicts and wars of the past in relation to, like, modern conflicts and modern geopolitical states, and I feel like it's very interesting to look at that example that you just gave and kind of think about that in terms of modern-day alliances, right? Like, right now we have Ukraine, Poland, Russia, a lot of, you know, talk involving the Ukraine-Russia war, and I think it's really interesting because you know, there's all this talk about alliances and how that affects what actions can be taken in Ukraine. And so I think it's very interesting that you pose that question of like, what if some of these modern day geopolitical alliances had been in place at the time of the Civil War? It definitely could have had a huge impact and a different outcome, possibly. Yeah. Very thought provoking episode, Kelvin. Yeah, thank you. But of course, the moral of the story, all of these stories, if you noticed, was that the Confederates took big fat L's in all of them. Mm. <laughs> so keep losing Confederate people. Union gang all the way. Get the yes. Confederacy. Yes. Uh, they just keep losing. So, mm. <laughs> all right. Ooh. I'll Ooh. close us out. Um, thanks for listening and thank y'all for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Uh, of course. If you listening enjoyed today's topic, please tell your friends about us. We're always happy to have new listeners and 
If you want to go a bit deeper into some of the stories for today, I'll put sources down in the show notes. Our instrumental music is by Mountaineers. You can find their music and more on Upbeat.io. And as always, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's History, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.